Welcome to Great Commission Conversations, a program where we engage in conversation with Bible-believing Christian workers who are serious about getting the gospel around the world. I'm Lee Cadenhead, an assistant pastor at Cornerstone Baptist Church in Carthage, Tennessee, and your host for this Great Commission Conversation. Soul winning, discipleship, church planting. These are the major themes of missions, and if you were familiar at all with independent Baptist efforts in Uganda, East Africa, you would probably have heard of the Stensis family, a name that's closely associated with these mission efforts in that part of the world. My guest today is Keith Stensis, second-generation veteran missionary to Uganda, and in the first part of our conversation today, Brother Keith walks us through the powerful story of his father's conversion and how that turned into two generations of gospel preaching and church planting in Africa. Brother Keith Stensis himself has spent the last 24 years serving in Uganda, and in this first part of my two-part interview, Brother Keith explains the greatest ministry challenge that his family faces in that part of the world, and he goes on to relate some of the church planting principles that the Lord has taught him over the years. Church planting is critical to the work of missions, of course, and it is a topic that we interact with regularly on Great Commission Conversations. But I have to say that Keith Stensis's treatment of this subject in today's interview represents one of the most practical, concise, and articulate presentations on the fundamentals of indigenous church planting that I've ever heard. With that introduction, here's part one of my interview with missionary Keith Stensis. Brother Stensis, I have a habit of beginning these conversations with some background about the missionary, with uh, some information about a missionary's conversion and Mm. calling to their particular field. But in your case, I'm hoping that you'll take us back a generation earlier. Yes, sir. Because you are a second-generation missionary, and I'm interested to find out how your family, how your parents ended up in East Africa and how old you were when that transition took place in your family and how that influenced you for missions. Yes, sir. First of all, thank you so much for having me on the program today. Um, Missions, people always ask me why missions is so important to me and why it has uh, just developed such a special place in my heart. And as you said, it does go back a generation before. I was born into a military family. My dad was uh, in the military in the United States Navy, and uh, just typical, you know, you what the the typical way you think of a Navy sailor was what my dad was—just a drunk alcoholic, could swear with the best of them. I mean, uh, his marriage was on the rocks, just about ready to get a divorce, and uh, just a rough life. And on top of that, my dad was involved in rodeo. He loved the rodeo scene, and so. He, uh, he used to ride the bareback Bronx, and so he had all that country wow. lifestyle as well. And so just a fast life, a wild life. And uh, anyway, he got stationed. Uh, the first part of his uh, term in the military, he was in Vietnam. And then the second part, uh, he was uh, stationed in a military base in Rota, Spain. And before my dad got stationed there, a missionary by the name of Eddie Woodfield came to Rota, Spain, and started a church there uh, for the United States military. Now, my dad will tell you that up until that point, he had been involved in religion all of his life. He had, when he joined the military, he would go to the chaplains, and he would try to find an answer to life and find out why things are going the way he's, life is going the way it's going, and, and why he just can't find any peace. And 
in his upbringing, no one ever told him about Jesus Christ. When he went to the chaplains, they would just tell him he's homesick. No one up now, my dad never ever heard that you could even go to heaven by accepting Jesus Christ as your Savior. Never heard that one time. And one of his uh, drunk buddies uh, that he used to go up party with was a man by the name of Chris Parker. And uh, Chris Parker, through the loss of his daughter, um, came to know Jesus Christ as his Savior through this church. And so dad would always be talking to him and saying, hey, you know, let's go party. Let's go do this. Let's go do that. And he said, hey, I don't do that anymore. And dad saw such a change in Chris's life that it annoyed him because (laughs) he didn't want to do anything. It was like your best friend not wanting to do anything that you have done for years. And uh, so so he, he was kind of upset at whatever it was that changed Chris's life. And so Chris invited him to come to church. And uh, so he did. And just to kind of find out what, who did this to Chris, you know. And uh, so he went to that church, uh, Bethel Baptist Church, and on that Sunday morning heard the gospel for the very first time and accepted Christ on that day. Amen. And... Dad was very much, he saw the need of the American military and the fact that there was no one reaching them and there was no one trying to reach out to them and get them the gospel. And so right after he got saved, got, he surrendered to preach. The only problem was he had just re-enlisted into the Navy, and once you re-enlist, it's very hard to take that back. Well, as God would have it work out, his dad died. And because his dad died, he was able to get out on hardship discharge, went back to the farm, helped, my, helped his mom out, and then was able to go to Bible college. He did two years in Bible college and uh, then went back to the mission field. And his desire was to start churches outside of military bases to help military guys just like he was, you know. And so we went back to Spain and uh, not down in in, uh, Rota where he was stationed earlier, but up in an Air Force base in Torjon Air Force Base next to Madrid and started Torjon Torjon Baptist Church up there. And just the church grew and just multiplied and God just did some amazing things in that church. Even to this day, we still meet people that got saved in that ministry. Amen. And uh, then we went from, Dad turned the church over to another man, and so we went up to Germany and uh, helped a church that was already established outside of uh, Zweibrück, an army base. And uh, there were basically two independent Baptist churches there, and so Dad helped the other church and kind of combined them together into one church. Got that finished in about a year, and then we went down to San Vito Air Force Base, which is in the southern tip of Italy and uh, started San Vito Baptist Church, or Adriatic Baptist Church in San Vito. And it was in San Vito is where I got saved, where I accepted Jesus Christ as my Savior. And uh, so Dad finished the work there, turned it over, and it's ironic that he turned that church over to Eddie Woodfield, the same missionary that he got saved in way back in Rota, (laughs) Spain. And uh, so at that time in 1988... Um, there was an independent Baptist church outside of every major military, American military base in the world. And so dad is just kind of, okay, what do I do now? Because that was my goal. That was my heart. And there was just literally no military base to go to, to start an independent Baptist church. So his home pastor said, Hey, listen, there's a church in Missouri, 
that needs a pastor, why don't you come back, pastor that church for a while until you figure out what the Lord wants you to do. They need some help. They need guidance. So we came off the field, went to Missouri, and uh, that was where I finished my last uh, year of high school, was in Missouri, and that was where God called me to preach. And uh, through the youth pastor that my dad hired, I, I heard about Oklahoma Baptist College there in Oklahoma City. And, uh, and so my desire then in 1990 then was to go to Bible college and, uh, you know, study to preach, do whatever I needed to do. And then God began working in my heart about Africa. And, uh, and now unbeknownst to me, dad's pastoring the church back here while I am in, uh, college, he's been pastoring there now probably three years and he has a missions conference. And in that missions conference, God deals with his heart about Africa. And so he begins going on deputation even before I did uh, to go to Africa. Well, his desire was to go to Zaire. And uh, he, was on, he even went to uh, Canada to go to language school, learn the French language. Well, because of the war that broke out there, they could not, he could not get into Zaire. And so his uh, missions director at BIMI asked him, would you go check out Uganda, which is right next door? Uh, we don't have any missionaries in there. Just see what's there, see what the possibilities are. And so he went over there and just found out literally that the country's wide open. I mean, just literally wide open. You could almost do anything you wanted to do in the country. And so dad then went into Uganda in 1994. I graduated from Bible college in 94, went on uh, deputation to raise our support. Well, when I first went to, when I first desired to go to Africa, my desire was to go to Ethiopia. And I actually went on deputation to go to Ethiopia. Um, If you remember back in the eighties, there was, they were in the news a lot, a lot of the famine, the civil war and all that, just the depravity and all that that was going on there. And, uh, and so I just basically surrendered and said, Lord, if you can use me in Ethiopia, that's where I'll go. I knew God wanted me in Africa, but I said, Hey, I'll go to Ethiopia. Well, getting close to getting the end of deputation and stuff, you, you, we couldn't get into Ethiopia. They, they just were not allowing missionaries to come in. And so dad down in Uganda said, Hey, Uganda's wide open. Why don't you come down here? Kind of basically what his pastor said, and, uh, just work with me for a little while, see what God would have you to do. So I said, all right, let's do that. So we went down to Uganda and to work with my dad for about a year. Now, I know you can't picture this by listening to my voice, but the capital city is in the central part of Uganda, where my dad works was in the southern part of Uganda, and right in the middle was this town called Masaka. And every month we would have to go to the capital city to exchange money, to get our support, to get supplies, food, different things like that. So every month we would get my dad's old Land Rover, drive to the capital city. It was about a a four-hour drive. And uh, right in the middle was that town of Masaka. Masaka has a bypass that goes around it. And so pretty soon we would, you know, you take the bypass so you don't go through the town. And that's exactly what we did. But the next time I would ask my dad, hey, let's just drive through it. And uh, so we would drive through it, and I'd look around, and the next time I'd say, hey, let's just drive the streets a little bit. And just every single time, Brother Lee, God just began working on my heart, working on my heart, pricking my heart, and finally I just said, Lord, uh, I believe this is what you're directing us to do. And so in the, the end of 1996, 
uh, we moved all of our stuff from Embadada, where my dad was, up to Masaka, and uh, we've been there ever since. And uh, so that's kind of the how the two generations kind of have been working together. And dad was there uh, in Uganda up until about four years ago, and then he had to come off the field for health reasons. And uh, and so we've been serving there ever since. So That is a tremendous story. And, and we're going to spend a lot of our, our conversation talking about the last 24 years mm-hmm. of, of fruit in Masaka. But actually the story starts with a – with a, a man that went as a missionary to the U.S. military, right? To, and that's ex- and yes. was where he was supposed yes. to be in Spain and transformed another family's life that, yes. that ended up. And, and I guess that's, that had uh, multiplied effects in East Africa because yes. not only your dad went, but mm-hmm. you have a brother that's on the foreign mission field. Well, too, at, at one time, both my brothers and their wow. family were in Uganda. My sister is still in Uganda as a missionary. And, and here's the thing, dad, because of his heart, dad, I've never seen a man who had a a, a missions heart like my dad. I mean, even today you talk about it, he'd just weep, but his influence on encouraging people to come to Uganda, I could count on, I could count at least 20 missionaries that have gone to Uganda because of dad's influence. Praise the Lord. And, and again, you think back, just like you just said, you I, I, there's a message that I preach sometime called "You Never Know," and it, it <laughs> yeah. literally goes back to that point. All it takes is reaching one person. You say, "What good is it going to reach this one person?" I mean, this guy's a drunk Navy sailor. What what's he going to do with his life? I mean, his life is messed up. It's on his marriage is on the rocks. What in the world is going to happen about that? And and then to see God change his life, and then just just thinking about the fact that all four of his children are on the mission field. Wow. And and all four serving the Lord and the the churches and the people that have gotten saved and the radio stations and the the colleges and all the influence and it all goes back like you said to that one missionary that surrendered back in the '60s uh, to go to the mission field and uh, reach my dad with the gospel of Jesus Christ it is absolutely amazing. What a tremendous tremendous story! Praise the Lord. Yes, sir. That's that's uh, that's outstanding. It's incredible. So tell us a little bit about uh, Uganda. Uganda is in East Africa, and you—I mean, you—you you should have a, a real good handle on that part of the world at, at this stage. So, mm-hmm. what are what are the people like? What's the culture like? Tell us a little bit about that region of the world. Yeah, the the Ugandans are very uh, very friendly people. One of the greatest things I love about Uganda is soul winning because. In their culture, it is against their culture if you start talking to them to walk away. All right. right. So you can literally talk to anybody you meet, and they will stop and talk to you. Um, very seldom. I can probably count on one hand the number of times that a track has been refused when you've tried to give it to somebody. So they're a very friendly people, but because there have been so many cults and there have been so many false religions come in, they're very suspicious, all right? So when when my dad came in, there was only one other, well, not one other, but one other group of independent Baptist missionaries, a uh, missionary by the name of Tony Stark from Alabama, yes, sir. Uh, was there in Uganda, and he kind of spearheaded the independent Baptist movement there. He was in the north part of Uganda, so that was why my dad went to the south. And uh, so... But before that, there's not really been a Baptist influence. And so when you tell somebody I'm from uh, Masaka Independent Baptist Church, 
what is a Baptist? And so most of the time when we go out soul winning, before we even get to the gospel, we have to explain to them what a Baptist is because they're sitting back and wondering, you know, are you Mormon? Are you Joe Witness? Or what cult are you from? Right. So they want to know what a Baptist is. So once you get over that hurdle, then you can literally, I, I cannot tell you, brotherly, how many times I've been to someone's house and said, hey, we're here today. And, and this is exactly what you say. We're here today and we'd like to preach the gospel to you. And they will say just one moment and they'll go into their house and they'll pull a bench or a mat or whatever out. They'll get their neighbors and you sit there because it's a very uh, friendly family situation. And they'll sit there and they're sorting their beans or they're sewing their, you know, garments or whatever work that they're doing. They'll just keep doing whatever they're doing and they're but they're listening to you. And uh, so it is a joy. It is a blessing to be able to work with the people there. So Uganda is divided up into basically two. Uh, there's 51 tribes in Uganda. So language is a very big problem there because you could go to one tribe, learn a language, and then drive 30 or 40 minutes away and you're in a totally different language. And so uh, it's very difficult communication there, which is why English is so important because Uganda used to be a British colony. Right. And so the government, the schools, all of that are English. And so English is kind of what semi ties the country together. So for example, in our church services there, we have an English service and we have a Luganda service. And uh, most of your churches, your Catholics, Anglicans, Pentecostals, whatever, they will do the same thing because you may be working like in our region, we work with the Buganda tribe and the Buganda tribe speaks Luganda. And, but there's other tribes that come to get work in that town that don't know that they don't know Luganda, and so the only way to communicate then is in English. So, so language is a is a big problem. But it, you could almost take a line and draw it right through Uganda because Uganda is the uh, and and even through Kenya, you have the Nilotic tribes, which are to the north, which is your uh, your darker skinned uh, Africans, the, the your your Sudanese, your Somalians, your Ethiopians. Sure. And then to the south, you have the Bantu tribes, which are more brown in color, and uh, they have a different culture than your Nilotic tribes, which are in the north, and they really don't have a very like for each other. As a matter of fact, we one time in our church there in Masaka, our church decided to have a man become our church treasurer, but he was a Nilotic from the north. And we had someone who was in our church that was a, from the Bantu tribes, and they said, hey, you cannot trust the Nilotics. If you're going to have him as a treasurer, I'm leaving the church. <laughs> so there's a, there's a lot of uh, prejudice between uh, the Nilotic and the, uh, and the Bantu. Your Bantu are more of your uh, agricultural people where you're – uh, you're Nilotic, or you're more of your warriors. Uh, many, whenever you go to Uganda, when you see security guards or the military, most of those guys are going to come from your Nilotic because they're more of your warrior type. You've heard of the Maasai uh, in Kenya; those are your Nilotic, uh, your warrior type type tribe. So we're we're landlocked, and so everything has to come from Kenya, uh, Mombasa, that which is the uh, seaport there. So everything comes across either uh, by truck or whatever you can bring in by air. So, but the greatest thing about Uganda, as far as Uganda itself, is the weather, uh, because. Just the situation we're in, we're right next to the second largest freshwater lake in the world, which is Lake Victoria. Lake Victoria right. 
And uh, so we're constantly getting wind and rain off of that. So Uganda, especially in the south, is very green. It never, never turns dry, just green all year round. We have two rainy seasons, two dry seasons, but even in the dry seasons, it stays green. It's beautiful. And because we're inland, we don't, we don't ever have any natural disasters. There's no hurricanes. There's no monsoons that come across. Uh, and so it's just a very perfect environment. We're about 4,200 feet uh, in the air or uh, as elevation. far as elevation. Yeah. And, uh, and then right on the equator. So the weather stays in about 70s and 80s all year round. And so it's just weather rise. There's there's a reason why Winston Churchill called it the Pearl of Africa, sure, uh, because it really is a beautiful, beautiful spot to be. Yeah, so. this is is this part of your appeal for workers? Uh- <laughs> Seriously, because we've we've talked to guys who retire, and and instead of just you know if you're if you're retiring and you you've got the ability to teach, you got the ability to work, you you, you want to influence people's lives, instead of going to Florida, instead of going to you know wherever. Come serve in Uganda, help Amen. a missionary, and work with a missionary there. The the, the weather's great. <laughs> yeah, well, it is a great concept. To so, not not just retirement, but redeployment. You, absolutely, you've got to be somewhere. Yes, and right. uh, what a what a great opportunity yeah. to be somewhere and be a help to a absolutely. missionary. Absolutely, you mentioned that conflict between the the Nilotic people and the Bantu peoples, mm-hmm. and how that's manifested uh, before in the context of local church. Mm-hmm. I think that's an interesting concept for some Americans that sort of perceive um, uh, certain prejudices yes. and and so forth uh, along along different lines yes. here in American history mm. but those some sometimes those prejudices intertribally can yes. be uh, very very sharp almost almost like a, a Jew Gentile type of type of division that oh, you would brother. find. In scripture. Uh, some of the some of the strongest prejudice uh, and and racial tension I've seen is between African tribes. Sure, uh, they they hate it, and it, and really when it comes around to elections, uh, because in their mind they're not electing electing a man, they're electing a tribe. Yes, and so what tribe you're from is what determines whether or not you're going to vote for them or not, or whether you hate them or not, or whether you're going to follow them, and uh, so it's a, it's a very it's a very selfish. Uh, attitude they have there because it's not about what's good for the country. It's about what's good for my tribe. Right. And so uh, we just celebrated uh, on October 9th, the independence day where they got their independence from Britain. And, uh, but if you go to Uganda on independence day and you drive through, you would never know it. There's not a flag raised. There's not, no one's celebrating. No one's out in the backyard barbecue and no, no one's doing any of that because they could care less about yeah. their country. Back in the late 1800s, I'll say this real quick, back in the sure. late 1800s, uh, under the Belgian agreement, they drew the lines around the countries for East Africa. And the Belgians just said, hey, we want this country to be Uganda, we want this country to be Kenya, we want this country to be Tanzania, we want this country to be Rwanda. And so they drew these lines around, but all they're doing is drawing lines around a bunch of tribes. Right. And so in your mind, in my mind, we look at them and say, you're a Ugandan. They say, no, I'm not Ugandan. I am a Baganda, or I'm a Busoga, or I'm a Teso, or whatever tribe they are. That is their loyalty, and that's why, that's why third world countries in Africa, they will not ever 
rise to a first world status or whatever. And it's not that they can't because Africa has the resources, they have the ability, they have the mind, they could do it, but they are so divided amongst themselves. It's kind of a reverse thing of the Tower of Babel. When God says, I don't want you to be united, I want you to be separated, I'm going to change up your language. So you come now to a country that is already divided because of language and culture, they never unite together. And, and so because of that, they're never going to have that nationalistic pride uh, that, hey, I'm a Ugandan. So. Well, there are important missiological implications for that because, of course, those, those geopolitical boundaries are mm. rather arbitrary in, in the consideration of the individuals, the people right. on the ground. Right. That, that they were de- they were de- those geo- geopolitical boundaries were decided by people that really didn't have appreciation for right. those cultural distinctions. And the Lord has sent us to every one of those tribes, right. not, just to the, not just to the geopolitical unit, yeah. but to all that exists within it. And that requires some um, – th- there's going to have to be some, some understanding, uh, some accommodation. If we're going to reach those people, right. you're going to have to understand who you're dealing with. Yes. For, I was going to give an example. My brother works with the Luconzo tribe or the, Bucon- the Baconzo, and uh, – when they drew the border, they drew the line right through the tribe. So you have half the tribe that is Congolese, and you have half the tribe that are Ugandans. But they don't care about the the, the name. They don't care about the country. We are Bakonzo. And, and so it's, like you said, it's it's the Europeans that came in and did that, but that's, that's right. not that it's not their problem, you know, where they draw the line. And so it has been a problem from, you know, the late 1800s all the way up to today, that tribal conflict over and over. Uh, you know, when, when people come to America, all right, they came from all different backgrounds. But sure. when you came to America, you became an American. You spoke English. You, you adapted to American culture. You didn't try to stay in your culture in the country. And that's what one of the things that made our country great was you had a solidified group of people that were strong that said, we are Americans. It, it wasn't until recently that people have started identifying themselves as certain types. Of, well, I'm an Irish American. I'm an African American. I'm a, you know, a, a Norwegian American. It didn't matter. You were American. Right. And, and, and that's where you stood. And that when you have that unified factory, it doesn't matter where you're from. It doesn't matter how you got here. We're fellow Americans, and that is one of the things that made our country strong and uh, was able to keep us together. Well, that slide into into tribalism, unfortunately, even in this part of the world, is manifesting itself yes. now in, in the political arena and, and other areas. And it is it is unhealthy for a, for a nation and for a people. But when it comes to evangelism, we've even got to... We have to consider that you, yes. there are there are even even differences in in the United States. You, you there, there are things to consider if you're going to go to the Northeast or the Pacific Northwest or the Midwest or the Southeastern right. United States. There are certain mm-hmm. uh, there's certain understanding, different culture, different Absolutely. kind of people. Mm-hmm. It's got to be uh, got to be considered when you as you prepare your philosophy of ministry and so forth. Now, uh, when you talk about the, the, the culture of, of Uganda, and one of the wonderful thing about the people is that they're so open to mm-hmm. talk. That's part of their mm-hmm. uh, culture. 
and the time that I've spent in Africa, which which more in southern Africa, but still the Bantu people, mm-hmm. that is one of the – it's so refreshing to go to a place like that and distribute tracks yes. or to do personal work because people have the time mm-hmm. to talk to you. Right. And, they're, and they're very open and they're very um, polite, really. Right. But I guess with with every place that you go, there are challenges on on both ends. Mm. So culturally speaking, what do you think are some of the challenges that you face in reaching these in reaching these people? I, I'd propose one. Um, whereas if you're going to go to Western Europe, say, there's definitely you would not find that kind of openness. Mm-hmm. There's a there's much more individualism, a rugged individualism, a nationalism in some cases, mm-hmm. and. And um, they're they're less open to have those kinds of conversations. They don't have time for you. Uh, On the on the other hand, so so it's so having gospel conversations is its own challenge Mm -hmm. in certain other places uh, around the world. Right. Uh, By the same token, you can go to certain places in Africa. You can get multitudes gathered together, say Mm -hmm. in a school setting, where the white preacher can show up. And the headmaster of the school may gather all of the students mm-hmm. together and allow the white preacher to preach, maybe right. even unannounced. Right. Um, but then, but then, certain methods of evangelism mm-hmm. uh, are are rather abused um, in in such a setting where you have multitudes of children that, in their first exposure to the gospel, are mm-hmm. asked to raise their hands, repeat a prayer. Not that not that individuals are not not that young people can't be saved in that right, sense. Right. But if you don't, for a, for an American going over and looking for prayer letter material. That has its own set of pitfalls, I'd say. Oh yeah, you tell me how many people you want to write down in your letter, and I'll <laughs> I'll get you the I'll get you the hands. <laughs> right, right. So, what are some of the challenges dealing with uh, with a culture such as that? All right, here's what I believe is the biggest challenge that we face. Okay, and my dad put it in a way that I hope I can explain. Here, here's what my dad said one time. He said, "Sometimes I wish the Ugandans had no clothes." Now, let me explain that, because when you go to Africa or Uganda and you see a person that is in a loincloth with a bone between his nose, with, you know, feathers, with all this kind of stuff, you automatically think, heathen, they need God, let's bring the gospel to them. But you go see that same Ugandan with a cell phone in his hand, with Western clothes on, and all of these things, it... it, takes your mind and you think okay this person is developed this person is you know he's he's up on top he's he he knows everything okay now what you have to do in your mind is you have to go to each person because understand that development in in Uganda especially has come very quickly over the last 50 60 years we go back 50 60 years and they were still a people that were primitive they had nothing. They lived very, and, and, and so they were involved in their witchcraft. They were involved in their idol worship. They were involved in uh, bewitching people, casting spells, all this kind of stuff. Now, fast forward in the next 50, 60 years, and they've started putting clothes on. They started carrying cell phones. They've started, uh, you know, having a Facebook page, all this kind of stuff that we think is modern development, but none of their tribal instinct has changed from their heart. Right. And so when you go to someone and you say, all right, I'm going to tell you about Jesus Christ, and I want you to accept Christ as your Savior, you cannot just bring out that, okay, once you get saved, now you become 
a Baptist because what they have done is all they have done is taken, whether it's Islam, whether it's the Anglican Church of Uganda, whether it is Catholicism, even uh, Charismatics, what they do is they literally take that Western religion and just simply put it on top of their tribalistic mentality. Yes. And and so now they can, they have a status of saying, I have a Western religion. But when it comes right down to it, all their thinking the, and the reason for their thinking and their manner of thinking all comes down to, all right, well, I need to go to the witch doctor and find out what he thinks. And I, and, and nowadays, I can tell you to Uganda, and the witch doctor is not some guy sitting in a mud hut. He's selling his wares out of the back of his Toyota truck, right. all right? And so you, you just have to, when you get there, you have to understand that is their heart. So when you witness to them, you cannot just get them to say, all right, let's follow the Romans road and then let's pray. You've got to dig into their life deep and you've got to say, all right, Jesus Christ is not just religion. He is not something you add on. Jesus Christ takes away all of this witchcraft. He takes away all of this idea of being able to cast spells on people because I've, I, and, and the way I learned this, Brother Lee, is we started leading people to Christ. They started coming to church, and then people get mad at them, and so they're casting spells and going to the witch doctor and putting curses on them, and they are scared to death. Mm-hmm. And I said, wait a minute, what, why are they scared to death? Aren't they saved? Well, that mentality is still down in their heart that witchcraft is powerful and witchcraft, and, and, and you don't see it openly there like you do maybe in the Caribbean or something, but it's there. And, and so as you're witnessing to them, you've got to make sure as you're talking to them that this is not something they are just adding on to what they already have, but this is something that is replacing what they have Amen. and teaching them that, that greater is he that is in you than he's in the world, that, uh, that God has the power over Satan. And when, when you're saved, you're in Christ. And when you're in Christ, there is no curse that can come upon you and there is no bewitching that can happen to you. And so that's a lot of teaching. That's a lot of time that has to be spent with them, uh, making sure that they understand that. Otherwise, you're, they're just still writing, you know, they may be a Baptist, but they're still just simply putting the Baptist on top of the way they've been raised all their life. And uh, some of the jo- most joyful times is when people will go into their homes and get their witchcraft and get their stuff out and, and burn it oh, and, and get Lord. rid of it yeah. uh, because then they're starting to understand it, it, it goes much deeper. It's not just adopting a Western religion of your choice. It is Christ, and when Christ comes in, he replaces, not just adds to, he replaces everything that you've had in your life. And it is the expectation of the preaching of the gospel that men will turn from idols to serve the living God. Yes. Um, That's that's an important distinction. It is... The gospel is not civilization, right? And we can rejoice or development, or or, or development. We can certainly rejoice in clean running water, Mm -hmm. in good hygiene practices, in (laughs) the practice of wearing clothes. All of these things are all of these things are cultural and civilizational Mm -hmm. goods. They are not the same thing as the gospel. And just because a certain measure of civilization has been brought to a certain people group Mm -hmm. does not mean that they are reached with the gospel. And for that matter, 
you you raise another important point there by by indicating that these different religious groups that are that are there in Uganda uh, by and large it's a it's a syncretistic it's it's an it's an addition of Islam or Anglicanism or Catholicism or whatever it may be or the charismatic movement Pentecostalism has got a lot of shares a lot of things actually yes. with uh, the animism oh in... don't get me started in that <laughs> literally brother you can go to uganda and almost every village i take you to they'll have some pentecostal church there somewhere yeah I, and incredibly li- it it, inc- it includes the health wealth and prosperity gospel you have some of the richest preachers yes. in the world in africa in yes. africa yeah. of all places but you take what pentecostalism offers and it's the same thing that the witch doctor that's, offers. That's right. You can just call it Christianity. You've got the dancing. You've got the spells. You've got the the babbling. You've got all. I mean, the whole. Yes. You just go right down the uh, the promise of prosperity, um, the casting out of demons, uh, all of that. It just it fits right in. And so they're coming in and saying, "All right, you can do everything that you're used to doing from childhood, but right. you can call it Christian." And, and and you can go to heaven and and so it just it fits the emotionalism the uh, I mean every single aspect of it just fits right in line with their tribalistic views I'd point out that um, if the claims of sociologists and and though and demographers are are to be believed then the so-called uh, global south and include in and especially in Africa the church is just growing there by leaps and bounds I, I want to point out that a lot of what goes for the growth of Christianity or is understood to be the growth of Christianity from the West mm. is not genuine Christianity. That's exactly right. And there is still a huge need for Bible-believing missionaries yes. Yes. because just to, just because you have a church in a particular village does mm. not mean that that village has been evangelized. Right. That church, in, in, in many cases, has just – has just added Jesus to the Absolutely. existing animism and sorcery. Right. So that that is a that's a that's a great point in terms of some of the challenges that you face in that Amen. part of the world. In the in the twenty plus years that you've been serving in Masaka, the Lord's enabled you to establish eleven churches that mm-hmm. are continuing in the faith that are yes, that are doing something for God. And um, I'm sure that your model for church planting um, has has developed over time, mm-hmm. probably in, in the time that you've been there, even through some experiences of trial and error. Mm-hmm. You work from certain principles, and then, you, and then you, you learn to do things more effectively. So how has your church model developed? Um, what, what's your approach to church planting, and what are some of the principles that, that you try to observe within that cultural mm-hmm. context for establishing local churches? All right, let me tell you first of all how I did it wrong. Okay. And, and then I'll go into what I learned. When I first went to Uganda, no one, and, and I went to four years of Bible college, and I'm not down in the college at all. I, I learned a lot there. But the fact is, no one ever taught you how to start a church. I was never taught that. So I went on deputation telling people I'm going to start churches. And when I got there, I'm thinking, okay, now what do I do? Okay, because uh, and 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 by the way, I encourage missionaries. Or one, if if I have any regret in my life, brother, it's that I went straight from Bible college to the mission field. Hmm. I wish that I had served in my local church with my pastor for a couple of years before I went. And 
the reason that I tell people that is number one, you going to Bible college, all right, you you're learning theory, you're learning uh, about how to do things, but you 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 are not learning how to deal with people on a ministry level. You're not you don't have a pastor that's pulling you under his wings and saying, "All right, this is what you do in this situation." You're not sitting in meetings in the church and finding out how do you solve personnel problems and and things. So I literally went to the mission field green. Okay, I didn't know how to deal with people. I didn't know how to start a church. I didn't know any of that. All right. Now, so when I went there, my concept was find a piece of property, build a building, and then get the people. All right. Because that's what I've seen so many people doing around the world. Sure. Okay. So you go to a country like Uganda and you find out how far a dollar can go. And so I remember one of the first churches we started, and uh, I call it my Corinthian church. And uh, one of the first churches I started was a church, and I the, there's some people there. They want to they want they want to serve the Lord, and and uh, they're excited. And I thought, you know what? For five hundred dollars, I had it all figured out. For five hundred dollars, we can buy this small plot of land. We can put this building up, and everything's going to be great. So I put that in my prayer letter. Hey, you know, just for $500, we can put up a building. And so we did. And somebody sent, I remember the church, I remember the name of the church, sent us that, and we put it up. And uh, to make a long story short, I had more problems from that church. And today that church is a Pentecostal church. All right. When things started happening, when cracks started appearing in the wall, Oh, pastor, you need to come fix that crack. I said, no, that's, that's your building. No, you built it. It's yours. You need to come fix it. And it was a constant coming to me and saying, you got to do this. You got to do this. And when they found out I wasn't going to do it, then they said, well, if you're not going to do it, we're just going to find somebody who will help us. And that's what they did and ended up going Pentecostal. So I began to really get in, the, in God's word and find out, all right, what is the priority? Okay. Is it wrong to have a building? Is it wrong to have property? Is it wrong to have all these things? What is the priority? And I found out as you study the scripture, you study the book of Acts, that there is absolutely zero emphasis on buildings. Right. And yet that is the emphasis that most missionaries put on church planning. Well, that's the American mentality. It is. All right. We have to have a building. Right. We have to have property. So we started changing up our method and saying, all right, we're going to go about this a little bit slower. Because again, we come from American mentality, which everything's quick. We sent you there to start churches. By the end of the first term, we want you to tell us we have four or five churches started. We want these churches uh, run by nationals. And, and And I want to go back and say, all right, now, would you lead someone to Christ? And would you put him as pastor uh, having never learned anything in your church after he just got saved, would you do that yourself? Right. All right. And the answer is, of course not, no, but we expect but you expect to, to, so you that. have something to right. write to us right. about the use exactly. of our missions money. So we said to, I said, we've got to slow down here. All right. We've got to, we've got to take this thing slower. We've got to figure out what the priority is. And you go through scripture and the priority goes back. And I hate to, I, I don't mean to make it simplistic, but it goes back to the great commission where it is preaching the gospel and discipleship, okay? So we would go in, and a guy comes and says, all right, pastor, I want to start a church in this this village. I said, okay, do it. Let me just give you one example. 
a man by the name of uh, Sibioto James comes to me and says, Pastor, I want to start a church. This church is 30 kilometers uh, from, our, from our church. And uh, I said, all right, do it. Okay, because a lot of times what they're doing is saying, all right, if I'm going to start a church, that means you're going to give me transport, you're going to send me there, you're going to buy this, you're going to buy I said, no, if you want to start it, you do it. That man got a bicycle, and he started riding his bicycle 30 kilometers one way every Sunday to start this church. And he started discipling, he started uh, preaching to people, he started getting a group of people together, they met under a tree, They uh, they were able to meet in a house that wasn't finished for a little while, and and they always come to me and they say, well, we need land. And I, one thing I learned a long time ago, especially with the way land is looked at in the tribes, right. is whites should not get involved with the land. And so I just told them, I said, here's what you need to do. You need to pray that God will give you a piece of land. And I've done that with every one of our churches. God would give you a piece of land. And in 10 of those 11 churches, the 11th church being our town church, we bought that property. But in the rest of those 11 churches, every one of them, God has given them their land. Amen. All right. Now they say, okay, pastor, we need a building. I said, well, first of all, no, you don't. It's a luxury to have. It's a nice thing to have, but you don't need it. All right. You build your building as your people grow. And so I, again, got back into scripture and said, all right, how does God deal with his people? From the very beginning, Brother Lee, as God deals with his people, God always deals with his people on a reciprocal basis. If my people do this, I will do this. If my people do this, I will do this. So we set up a plan where if they, I tell them, all right, you want a building. That's great. So I want you to get all your people together, and I want you to start making the bricks. And, uh, and because you need to have sweat in the game, you need to have blood in the game, you need to, your people need to see this, this is their building. And so they start, they start making the bricks, they start, uh, uh, you know, collecting the clay, collecting the straw, whatever, making the bricks. And they'll make 20, 25,000 bricks. And I say, all right, you make the bricks, I'll help you with cement. All right. Well, that's a motivation for them to do their part, knowing that we're going to be able to put these bricks together because cement's coming, right? All right? And so as that comes along, then, uh, you know, th- then they need a roof. And I say, okay, you go to the forest, you cut the trees down, you put all the trusses up, you get all that taken care of, I'll help you with iron sheets. And again, it's motivation. Now, here's the difference. For an American, we could put down a couple hundred dollar bills and get it done in a week. For an African to do it this way, it's going to take over a year and to you and me, that just, oh, why is this taking so long? But it is essential that they grow in their ministry because when they grow in their ministry, it becomes their ministry. It becomes their place. And when you're gone, then it doesn't matter that you're gone right. because it's theirs. And so every one of our people have their own buildings, their own property. They invested. Did I help them? Yes. All right. I'm not against a missionary helping, but helping as God leads and as they are putting their effort and their strength into it. Okay. I have one church who continues to test me. They have the bricks. And I told them, I said, listen, I need you to get the bricks on the property. It's just a little ways away. You can get your people, start bringing the bricks on the property. If you'll bring the bricks on the property, um, then I will provide the cement. All right. Same thing I've done to other churches. For over a year and a half, 
those bricks have stayed over there. <laughs> and they just say, Pastor, if you just give us a little bit of money, we can get a truck and move these bricks. I said, no, it doesn't work that way. I said, this is your responsibility. And, and again, the temptation is there. Oh, why do you make these people carry all those bricks that far? Because they've got to have skin in the game. They've got to see this is their building. I read a book one time, and uh, I would highly recommend any missionary to read it. And it's written by an old Pentecostal guy, but take away the bones and eat the meat is what I always say with some of those books. But it was called The Indigenous Church by Melvin Hodges. Mm -hmm. And this is what he wrote in there, and it's, it's one of the greatest principles I've ever learned. He said, you as a missionary have two choices. You can build a church in a greenhouse, all right, or you can let a church grow out in the wild. And what a lot of missionaries do, Brother Lee, is they build the church in the greenhouse. And in a greenhouse, you can grow a plant fast. You can grow a plant beautiful. You can grow a plant out of the elements. They're not having to suffer. They're not having to do anything because the greenhouse is providing that protection. But as soon as the greenhouse leaves, that plant will die. And that is why, Brother Lee, a lot of churches that missionaries start, especially in Africa, when the missionary leaves, they'll die because they've been created in a greenhouse. But you take a church and you let them grow out in the wild and you let them suffer a little bit and you let them have the rain and you let them have the harsh sun and you you let them dig their roots deep. When you're gone, they are going to continue, all right? There is no doubt in my mind I can say this with assurance in my heart. There's no doubt in my mind that these churches that have been growing this way will continue when I'm gone. I don't have any problems with them, okay? The churches that missionaries are protecting, the churches that missionaries are constantly meeting their every need, and, and you know, what? well, we need this. Well, the missionary says, hey, I've got that money. It's just it's not much money to me. It's a lot to them, but it's not much to me. Here, I'll, I'll, I'll take care of that. And every time they do that, you're just setting up a greenhouse effect because when you're gone, they're not going to know how to give. They're not going to know how to trust the Lord. They're not going to know how to sacrifice. They're not going to know how to do any of these things because they've never been taught to do it. All right? Uh, that's why I'm very much, um, and, and again, I know there's good men that differ on both sides of this, but for me personally, I'm, I'm against the supporting of nationals from the United States, all right? Why? Because when you do that, you don't teach him, first of all, to live by faith. Secondly, you don't teach the people the importance of giving. Why should they give if the money's coming from abroad? And so you're not teaching them tithing. And and that was one of the biggest things I saw in our pastors over there was they were never they were never teaching about the proper way of giving. They were never teaching about the the taking care of your pastor and taking care of the church because when a missionary is involved, it's just money from the states, money coming in. And so I do not support the, I, I don't support any of the men. I don't give any of the men money. All right. Uh, I, uh, on a continual basis, I mean, I do help out when there's, when there's needs that I can be a blessing with, but uh, they need to learn. Our, one of our, our, we have a Triennial Bible Institute and the Village Mentorship and Assistance Ministry you were asking me about. One of the reasons I started that is because I started seeing why, why are we going to Uganda and setting up an American type of way of training? We have this idea, we need to have a Bible college, it has to be four years, and we have to bring people in, and they have to go through this four years, and when they go through four years, they're ready for the ministry, all right? 
So I've got, right now, brother, I'm working with 65 pastors, okay? Every single one of them in church have a church. Every one of them are already self-supporting because they already have their land, they have their chickens, they have their goats, they have their cows, they have all of these things. Why in the world would I uproot them from that? Because that's the hardest thing a missionary has to do is try to get his people to be self-supporting. So I've got all of these men, 65 pastors, brother, right now. Every one of them are self-supporting. And one of the reasons they're self-supporting is because I don't tell them, hey, you've got to leave your family, you got to leave your farm, you got to leave all this, you got to come to the town, get a job, go to school for four years. And so they're, they're losing all of this. They get used to the town life. They see, I've got electricity, I've got water, I've got, look at the lifestyle they live around here, and you want me to go back to the village? Are you kidding me? <laughs> sure. <All right? laughs> so my purpose is, let's leave them there. They're already self-supporting, all right? They already have their lands. And so instead of bringing them to the town for training, I go out to the village and do the training out there so that they're able to continue their churches and and it 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 helps accomplish the purpose of of the self-supporting it helps them as i go out there i teach them the purpose of the self-governing taking care of themselves they're preaching the gospel it's what we want in churches all right and and again i realize every country is a different ball field but in uganda in africa the worst thing that you can do is take guys out of their village and bring them into the town and city and try to train them in a quote-unquote four-year Bible college because that's the way we've always done it, all right? I'm not against four-year Bible college. We have one in our town there, Masaka Baptist College, but that college is for those in the town, right? right? Um, but I don't tell the guys out in the village, hey, for me to be able to work with you, you have to come here to college because I will be uprooting and defeating my very purpose of trying to help them to be self-supporting. Sure. And uh, so, so it's, it has been a process of learning and growing and finding out what works and what doesn't work. And I'm still learning uh, because no matter how much you learn about Africa, Africa always throws a wrench in the, in the things. And, uh, but it's been a blessing to learn these things. And, and as you start seeing what works and you start seeing the, the stability there, you find out that those that are stable and those that are doing right are following the pattern of the New Testament church that we find in the Bible. And it's like, oh, wow, maybe God's word does mean what it says. Well, we managed to touch on a number of really important topics in today's conversation. I appreciate that Brother Stence has proposed, quite genuinely, I think, the possibility of an American retiring to the foreign mission field. Brother Stence has also dealt with the problem of syncretism in Africa, that is, the tendency to add Western religion to African spiritism. This is a problem in many parts of the world, and it's something that I think both pastors and missionaries should beware. If you're involved or interested in church planting in an underdeveloped or third world context, the last portion of this interview is worth listening to again and maybe again and again. The key to effective church planting is never foreign money. Thank God for American churches that give sacrificially to support church planters in the uttermost parts of the earth. But the shortcuts that foreign money provides in the work of church planting has done a great deal to undermine the indigenous principle on foreign fields, weaken the health and autonomy of foreign churches, 
and inflate or even sensationalize the actual fruitfulness of foreign missionary efforts. I am particularly grateful for Brother Keith's transparency and lucidity on this topic. Thanks again for tuning in to the program today. You won't want to miss the second part of the interview where we pick right up where we left off today. You can subscribe to this program wherever you receive your podcasts. And if it's been a blessing to you, feel free to invite others to tune in. I always welcome your feedback. You can contact me, Brother Lee, by email at greatcommissionconversations at gmail.com. Until next time, let's do what we can to preach the gospel in the regions beyond.